0: Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. And I'm Robert
1: Bucilato.
0: Today, we are going to talk a little bit about the transformation of southern Florida and the state of Florida, really, through Cuban migration after the Cuban Revolution of 1959 and Fidel Castro coming to power. Uh, really focus on a couple of events. Bay of Pigs invasion, in, in uh, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, mm-hmm. Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the Mariel Boatlift in 1980. And then shooting down of the brothers to the rescue plane in 1996, which uh, led to some strong action from Bill Clinton, which began the process of Cuban Americans shifting. There's still majority of them are still Republicans, but beginning to to, to hedge a little more politically between the political parties. So let's start with 1959. You have Castro come to power. He is a leftist. Not not a declared out now communist yet at that point But certainly a leftist Who overthrew a government that was uh, corrupt Batista government, kind of a right-wing government Backed by the United States For years there had been corruption in Cuba There had been the influence of American gangsters And American mobsters We've had a previous episode where we touched on Al Capone We're going to do a whole... Another episode on the mob in Al Capone in Florida and, and also on the Cigar City Mafia out of Tampa, which had a lot the Traficante family. They had a lot of influence in Cuba. Meyer Lansky, who was uh, based in, uh, in Las Vegas at times, based in uh, uh, New York at times, but ended up being based in, in Southern Florida, in Miami. Eventually had a lot of influence in Cuba. Bugsy Siegel, before he was uh, assassinated by other gangsters uh, because of uh, perception of, of money losses with the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas which was a gangster hotel, which they started and Bugsy CC go managed. He had a lot of influence in Cuba. There was a gentleman, also Johnny Rosselli, who did a lot of, had a lot of control over the mob. Southern Florida, coordination sometimes in rivalry with the Traficante family out of Tampa. They had a lot of, he had a lot of influence in Cuba, Johnny Rosselli. These uh, gangsters had a lot of connections to politicians in the United States, particularly Republican politicians. Eventually, there became a lot of anti-American sentiment, the desire for changing Cuba, which led directly to the Cuban Revolution. I mean, I'm giving the causes because I know we'll be saying a lot of negative things about about Castro's government, obviously, in this episode. But I want to also paint the picture as to how he came to power and that a lot of it was the fault of uh, people connected to Florida, people uh, in the United States. So... Castro comes to power in '59. You begin to see a flight of, of particularly the bourgeois from Cuba, right? In between '59 and '61, a lot of them end up in southern Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. In fact, uh, uh, Congressman Jose Diaz Valar, uh, Mario Diaz and his brother Jose Diaz Valar, who's an anchor on NBC. Uh, they were both born in Fort Lauderdale. They actually were not born in Cuba. They, their brother Lincoln, who was in Congress. ...was born in Cuba, but the two younger brothers who are prominent public, uh, you know, or public figures these days... ...were actually born in Fort Lauderdale in, in 60 and 61, I think, because they fled right after the revolution. So there is enough of a group of, of influential Cubans that had fled to southern Florida, Dave and Broward counties... ...and then obviously a big chunk of Cuban influence in Hillsborough County begin to influence Florida politics... At the same time, when it becomes obvious Castro is going to align with Nikita Khrushchev and the Soviet Union, Robert, John Kennedy inherits a plan from the Eisenhower administration. I want to stress this, right? The Bay of Pigs was an inherited. The political narrative of it has been skewed by depending on which party you're in. He inherits a CIA-oriented plan, an invasion of Cuba, which... There had been training of, of uh, Cuban exiles In um, parts of southern Florida Yoseppa Island, which is near uh, Fort Myers, Sanibel area Had become essentially a lock, stock and barrel owned CIA island For this training exercise Kennedy's in office not very long He pulls the trigger on this uh, Robert, it doesn't go well Well, you know, the thing about uh, Kennedy is- and you had mentioned
1: this uh, this changing of uh, of a political current that was taking place in south florida you had a lot of cubans who were coming here they identified almost at once with republican uh, philosophy they all registered to be republicans but the one thing that connected kennedy and these new cubans And the Republican Party in particular, was a hatred of communism. Kennedy was a liberal Democrat, but he was a a total hawk when it came to communism.
0: And and as Lyndon Johnson would point out very privately in his bitter moments about uh, Robert Kennedy in particular, when Lyndon Johnson had been one of the leaders in trying to get Joe McCarthy censured and expelled from the Senate, John Kennedy went missing because of his dad's eyes to McCarthy uh, McCarthy. and because his brother Robert Bobby Kennedy had been uh, uh, hired by McCarthy on on his committee and worked with Roy Cohn among other infamous figures
1: so you you had um, there was an old saying in South Florida that if you asked an Irishman they all say that their family had an earlship in Ireland, that they had an ancient earlship, and they were forced to flee because of the English. And that every Cuban American would say that their family were once one of the richest families in Cuba. So you know that that you talk to anybody, and they all they all came from wealth, they all came from privilege, and they all left because they were coming into this, this new successful workers' revolution that was slowly morphing itself into a communist dictatorship. There was a lot of anger from them. They were willing to train. They were willing to take part in this invasion. And a lot of them did because they thought they were going to reclaim their homeland. And it was an absolute disaster.
0: From start to finish. Yeah. Ended up putting a lot of pressure on the Kennedy presidency. Although, um, one thing that can probably be said is that it made a, an international circumstance, created an international circumstance where Nikita Khrushchev began to misjudge Kennedy and think Kennedy was yeah. weaker and less competent and less capable than he was. And that led to um, mistakes by Khrushchev. Berlin... Later that year And then obviously With the Cuban Missile Crisis In 1962 Let's fast forward To the Cuban Missile Crisis In 1962 yes. If you haven't read 13 Days Robert Kennedy's book Or seen the movie adaptation I, I strongly recommend it <laughs> uh, This one, Oh go ahead Go ahead uh,
1: I was just say The one thing That is so amazing You would never think of it Because You know Florida is just or three inches from sea level, but there are so many underground bunkers in South Florida. And, you know, I, I know one friend of mine whose granddad had a three-level bunker that he built, um, you know, through contract labor during the Cuban Missile Crisis, because you, you just had this absolute paranoia that these weapons that were being put in place by the soviet government in cuba were going to be what would trigger the final countdown the the end-all be-all nuclear holocaust that would destroy and wipe out this country and what is so amazing you mentioned 13 days um i will always remember this interview with uh bob McNamara. Kennedy and later Lyndon Johnson, Secretary of Defense, a very anti-communist man in his own right, he talked to Castro in the early 2000s at a screening of 13 Days, and he asked Castro what Castro was doing during this time period
0: um, when there was the the embargo, when the Soviets were setting up these missiles, and Castro told. Nikita Khrushchev, to go to war. Wow. And Bob McNamara was shocked, and he said, don't you know that you would have been killed? And he said, yeah, we all would have been killed. Mm -hmm. But that was my mentality. So, you know, I think people forget how absolutely close we were to utterly destroying ourselves. Yeah. Uh, And how close... We talk about Castro, how close General LeMay and some of even the people Kennedy had appointed had come to war, uh, had had, had tried to come to trying to force JFK, RFK and McNamara to go to war. Uh, I don't know how embellished it is, but there's one scene in the movie where uh, it's obvious one of the uh, uh, military commanders is trying to force his way into a war and, and McNamara has to have him stand down. And yeah. said, "You are not going to fire without an order from me, which comes from the president of the United States." But that there was a commander at the Pentagon who didn't, clearly didn't thought that and said it. McNamara and Kennedy were soft, and yeah. you know saw this as an opportunity. And that was the same thing with General Curtis Lemay, who I am sure we'll talk about again in this show when we talk about the nineteen sixty eight election. Um, George Wallace he was George Wallace's running mate, but so we come really close to war in that. Um, moment
1: and it was another instance where the entire world was watching this blockade that was taking place off the florida straits and you know it was it was a really monumental moment because had the blockade not worked had the soviet shipping uh, vessels not blink and not turn around i who knows what would have happened And you, at this point in time, you see a real rise in the profile of our governor, uh, Byron. And he would go on to have a a really important role in our uh, nation's uh, atomic energy program after he left office.
0: Yeah. So that was, of course, Ferris Bryant. Uh, at that point, we fast forward about 10 years. At the time, Kennedy, uh, excuse me, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger are in the process of creating detente and creating a little bit of a triangulation, playing the Russians, uh, uh, the Soviets off against the Chinese. Uh, a brilliant, from my perspective, you know, right now I'm editorializing a bit, but a brilliant strategic move. As part of that, it's less known, but, you know, it, it, it happened. Kissinger and Nixon decided they would let Khrushchev know tacitly they were accepting communist rule in Cuba. They would, you know, continue to ratchet up economic pressure. We put on an economic embargo in 1961. I should have mentioned that right after (laughs) they appeared. An embargo that that was 60 years long and didn't do a heck of a whole lot
1: to cripple... Kennedy famously bought, I think it was like five or eight pounds of Cuban cigars, and then immediately
0: signed the embargo. Right. The embargo didn't do a whole lot of good. Obviously, it's still in place when Nixon is president. But Nixon essentially gives uh, Brezhnev the guarantee that, hey, obviously we had verbally agreed at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis not to invade Cuba. I'm now actually going to give you greater assurances. I think they may have put it in writing the Soviets at the time, got the CIA and Richard Helms, the uh, the Hawks in the Pentagon, real angry. But Nixon was triangulating a bit. Carter is in office. Carter is uh, someone that, that Castro even mentioned later in life that he respected. And I think uh, it's very difficult unless you have a, a hardcore ideological bent not to respect Jimmy Carter's. But Carter being in office at that time also coincided with Castro... Who was feeling the economic pinch Unloading his prison uh, His prisons Unloading his jails of political prisoners And other common criminals And encouraging them To flotilla Yeah, to flee and flotilla Into the United States Where the United States' policy Of accepting political refugees From communist countries uh, The U.S. had a very Relaxed that yeah, right, right. But, the, but, it was, but it wasn't lax in that the U.S. would not accept refu- so-called economic refugees from other Caribbean nations that were really political refugees from right-wing dictatorships. So the U.S. would not accept large numbers of refugees from Honduras, El Salvador, and Haiti when they were backed, when they had right-wing, U.S.-backed, Uh, military dictatorships, and and the Dominican Republic also, but they would take everyone from Cuba because it was a left-wing, and it was again where the U.S. was ideologically aligned in the Cold War, was more on the right, and more aligned with right-wing military juntas, particularly in Latin America. But then that created a dynamic where South Florida changed, and you saw a change in Congress from the very liberal Democrats of Claude Pepper, Dante Fascell, Bill Lehman, and Larry Smith. Those were the Democrats that were representing Southern Broward County and all of Miami-Dade County. What is now Miami-Dade County what was Dade County at the time. In the Congress in the 1980s to Cuban-American, uh, uh, Cuban-Americans, uh, you saw a bit of a white flight. Uh, north into Broward and Palm Beach counties. What that did is it turned Broward and Palm Beach, who had, which had been two of the more Republican counties in the state, with a lot of Northerners from the Midwest that had moved moved into Florida in the forties and you know, after World War II, into the most Democratic counties in the state. In fact, Broward County is the is the most Democratic large you know metropolitan county in the entire southeastern United States now, because you have the liberal kind of white professional class. And uh, Jewish Americans, and a lot of the, uh, the 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 liberal elements that you had that dominated Miami politics, which we've talked about in previous episodes, how Miami was like a northern city, move north into Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, Boca Raton, and and, and West Palm Beach, and make those areas very liberal areas. Uh, oh, and the other thing I should point out after nineteen eighty is you had the other thing that made Broward County much more liberal was the Caribbean population, the Black Caribbean population, the. Uh, Haitian, Jamaican, West, and Trinidadian population. The West Indian population moved in mass further north. So the, the the areas of that population that still exist in Miami-Dade County, uh, there are some in the Cutler Ridge area in southern Dade County and around Homestead, but generally they're all the way north, mass around the, along the Broward border, and then there are far more Caribbean, Jamaicans, Trinidadians, etc. Uh, Haitians in Broward County, which then also further tilted Broward to the left, which has made it, as I said, the most Democratic county in the southeastern United States. So that, that was the impact of Marielle. Then, Robert, you had Bill Clinton in 1996. Think, you know what? I can flip Florida. It's gone Republican. The only election that didn't go Republican. The, OK, there was no election After Franklin Roosevelt was president, where Florida performed better than the national average for the Democrats, other than the 76 election, when Jimmy Carter from a neighboring state as a native southerner won the state. But even when Lyndon Johnson won in 64, he won Florida by by a couple thousand votes. He won nationally by 23 points. So he ran well below. He ran 10 points below or 12 points below his national average in Florida. And the same could be said for. Uh, Truman And then uh, John Kennedy had lost Florida to to Richard Nixon. It was one of the few southern states Nixon carried. So uh, it was a state that had gone heavily to the Republican column. In fact, in 1984 and in 1988, Florida had been the most Republican state. In the southeast in those two presidential elections That may yeah. shock people now When you think about Alabama, Georgia Well, Georgia less so now But Alabama, Mississippi, uh, South Carolina Arkansas, the kind of margins uh, Donald oh, Trump I mean rolled. How competitive they yeah. are now Right, no, but it, it, yeah. the, 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 old, the, yeah. the kind of margins Trump has run up In those states, Robert It might shock you that each one of those states I named Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas uh, South Carolina uh, North Carolina, they all... Tennessee, Tennessee's also a state that's gotten heavily Republican in presidential elections. Uh, each one of those states performed better for Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis than Florida did. Clinton does close close the gap in 92. We talked in a previous episode, Hurricane Andrew had a lot to do with that. The The Bosch response from FEMA and, and George Bush. But 96, Clinton senses an opportunity. And uh, walk us through that a little bit. He thought maybe... Now is the time to, to mend fences with the Cuban-American community.
1: Well, one of the, one of the things that we should also stress is um, this whole concept of Miami as a melting pot of institutions and buildings and schools becoming more accommodating to uh, Latin Americans, to Latin immigrants, um, a, a much more... Uh, uniform usage
0: of Spanish um, all took place from the 1980s to the 1990s. Yeah, correct. And, um, wow, there was still
1: a, a pretty, you know, concentrated Republican conservative body of Cuban-American voters in Miami. It was all predominantly revolving around communism and the motherland, and wanting to make that an independent nation again. And, you know, essentially, and rightly so, they had a grudge about it. It has been the mission of every Democratic president, from Carter to Obama, to turn around the embargo Clinton wanted the Sunshine State. He wanted it really, really badly. He was very popular with the elder uh, community here. He was very popular in the Panhandle. Um, Some of his margins in places like Liberty County and, uh, you know, the Pensacola area in central Florida would make somebody like Andrew Gillum or Alex Sink weak today. I mean, they were just... it were color, too. I mean, they were unprecedented. And he had, like he always does, he had to walk a, a fine tightrope between not only winning support of every demographic, but also enacting and pushing forward his agenda to continually open up relations with Cuba. You saw a lot of situations where, uh, we mentioned Jimmy Carter, where former President Jimmy Carter was allowed by the U.S. State Department to visit Castro during Christmas time, there was a lot more involvement with our uh, foreign, foreign delegates to come to Cuba. But at the same time, he was also facing a really bad backlash, which Dole took advantage of, trying to almost scare Cuban Americans that uh, Clinton was pro-communist, was in favor of Castro, was going to basically give Castro a clean slate. A lot of the, the similar rhetoric that went on um, after Obama actually opened up Castro, and yeah. I mean Cuba, in the, the 2000s. Um, so it was it was a, a terrible obstacle for him. Um, he still did win Florida, but um, it was a close call. And a big reason why was because he was very pro um, turning around the embargo.
0: Right. And uh, the the, the person who actually paid the price for that was Al Gore. The Elian Gonzalez case uh, soured the Cuban-American community for a long time on the Democratic Party. And we saw the Brooks Brothers riot um, organized and orchestrated by Roger Stone, a Fort Lauderdale resident, Roger Stone. who uh, Everybody now knows he's a Fort Lauderdale resident, right, because he got hauled off. (laughs) <laughs> the middle of the night, but he was the, the mastermind behind that using some Cuban-American muscle to shut down the recount in miami Gate County with the help of some local Democrats, including Alex Pinellas, because, because and Al Gore's margin had already been cut by 70,000 votes for in miami Gate County from what Clinton had in 96 because of the aftermath of the Elian Gonzalez case. That is one side of the story. I will present to you the other side of the story. I know we're running a little short on time, Robert, but I will tell you that among the Caribbean-American community, uh, the Haitian, uh, Jamaican, Trini, the the, communities are, the Bahamian community, the communities I mentioned that had by that time moved north into places like Hollywood and Lauder Hill and Lauderdale Lakes and, and the Fort Lauderdale area, the Elion case, the handling of the Elion situation solidified them to the Democrats. Yes, it did. Because they saw the exact opposite of the Cuban-American community. So we've had a lot of writing and reporting about how uh, that was for the Democratic Party in Miami-Dade County. I will tell you, it grew the Democratic hold on Broward County with those ethnic people from the English-speaking Caribbean and the French-speaking Caribbean, uh, Creole-speaking Caribbean. Uh, They solidified them stronger to the Democratic Party. They were... um, and there was also, there was racial tension, right? Obviously these groups I'm mentioning are all all, all African descent, blacks. Most of the Cuban exile community had been, had been white. Quite frankly, that, that played a role in uh, the riots and the racial uh, tension we saw in Miami in the 1980s. Uh, the most, the, the biggest urban riots we've seen post Watts and then post 68 right after Martin Luther King was shot were the two sets of riots in Miami, the 1980 riots after the McDuffie um, killing, um, and then the, the 89 riots in Overtown, Liberty City, and, um, and uh, the, the African American section or Bahamian American section of, uh, of Coconut Grove. Um, and what you saw in that dynamic was police officers or law enforcement officials or politicians who were Cuban American Versus a community that was African American, just very, very sad stuff. But racial tension was part of it. Yeah. Let's 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 finish this up by saying what has happened in in the in the most recent set of elections is you're seeing, and we'll see what happens in 2020. You saw in 2016 many Cuban Americans reject Donald Trump. He was able to offset that with with bigger margins in other parts of the state. But many Cuban Americans who had voted for for um, for Dole Who had voted for George W. Bush Who had voted for John McCain Kind of flipped towards Hillary Clinton uh, Because of a feeling Of animosity towards Latino groups Hispanic groups and, and the dynamic I've noticed recently In South Florida, Robert Is you're seeing more and more Cuban-Americans Who at one time were not necessarily uh, Mingling or, or, or connected to the other Latino groups Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans Dominicans and then all the South American groups, Central and South American groups, now kind of meshing in that melting pot you talked about in Miami, yeah. um, and in, in the Fort Lauderdale area as well, and that is moving them to the left. Um,
1: well, on, on I the, think also it's because they're settling. Yes, that's you know, true too. We're seeing second and third generation. You know, really, up, not so much. They don't even find themselves so much as Cuban or Cuban American. They really identify themselves as American. Right. And uh, and I think that's where you see that whole uh, movement towards, um, particularly in uh, you know Miami, a, a, an acceptance towards opening relations with Cuba that I, I think was probably very surprising to people like Marco Rubio, who um, you know is still very, very much of the old school. You know, and I think a lot of that had to do for personal reasons, you know, because of what his family went through. But um, it's really more of of the sort of younger dynamic that's beginning to take hold.
0: Yep, that's absolutely right, Robert. Let's let's leave it there. Uh, We'll be back next week with another new episode of the Florida History Podcast.